Welcome to JTV, the Global Jewish Channel. Well, tonight, it's our very first JTV live event. We're going to have a packed audience coming to this room here tonight, and we're going to be discussing, tackling one of the greatest questions a person can ask. Is there a God? We've got two people who have very, very different points of view. Professor A.C. Grayling, known as the fifth horseman of uh, new atheism, and uh, brave enough to tackle him, we've got Rabbi Daniel Rowe. The two are going to lock horns tonight. We're gearing up for this. We're really excited. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's two participants are leaders in their respective fields of atheistic and Judaic thought. Professor Anthony Grayling is the master of the New College of Humanities and a fellow of um, St. Anne's College, Oxford. He is known as the fifth horseman of new atheism, up there with figures such as Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens in challenging religious belief. In particular, Grayling's book, The God Argument, challenges arguments for, made for the existence of God and argues that humanism can and should replace religion as humanity's moral compass. Brave enough to take on one of the great beasts of the cause of atheism is Rabbi Daniel Rowe. Rabbi Rowe is a philosophy graduate of University College London and completed a postgraduate degree in the philosophy of mathematics. Rabbi Rowe also devoted several years of study in a Jerusalem Talmudic college, also known as the Yeshiva. Um, though I suppose Talmudic College does sound fancier, especially on the CV. Um, known as one of the most dynamic Jewish speakers in the UK, Rabbi Rowe is passionate about sharing his Jewish belief, forefronting both the Jewish outreach organisation HUK and the Shabbat Project. And this debate tonight is all the more important because, of course, a recent poll just, uh, uh, that was just released recently found that 48% of Britons um, no longer subscribe to religion. And uh, that makes this, uh, this evening all the more relevant, the question of whether there is substantial convincing evidence for the existence of God. Both our speakers have devoted great amounts of time to one, one of life's greatest questions, the question of God's existence. And tonight, the two have agreed to go head-to-head -head debating this very subject. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, can you please give a very warm welcome to tonight's guests, Professor A.C. Grayling and Rabbi Daniel Rowe. Okay, so let me just say a few words on format now. Um, so first of all, our speakers will be given 15 minutes for their opening remarks. Um, there will then be 10 minutes for rebuttals. There will then be a further five minutes for rebuttals. And then we're then going to go to the audience for questions. And finally, there will be three-minute closing statements. Now, when the speaker has one minute left, I will say one minute. And uh, when they are out of time, I will say time, at which point you don't literally have to stop speaking, but we would kindly ask you to conclude your remarks. And now, ladies and gentlemen, to open tonight's debate, please give a very warm introduction to Professor A.C. Grayling. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, well, just to make absolutely sure you're not confused about who's doing what in this debate, I, I'm the atheist. <laughs> the, the trouble with that word, atheist, is that, of course, it's a, a theist's word. It's a bit like somebody who plays chess, finding a word for people who don't play chess. And that exactly characterizes the relationship between people who have some kind of religious belief or commitment and those who don't. This point is sometimes made uh, a little more clearly, perhaps, by 
contrasting those who collect stamps and those who don't. Uh, so the atheists are those who collect stamps, and then they give a name to those who don't and call them atheists. I think I would prefer to be called a naturalist, that is somebody who believes that the universe is a realm of natural law. If people wouldn't misunderstand that as somebody who takes his clothes off and runs around the woods at the weekend, a naturist, or a free thinker perhaps. But at any rate, for the time being, I'll accept the, the label atheist. Atheism has to be distinguished from two other very uh, important arenas of debate which are connected to atheism, and that is secularism, which is a debate about the place of religion and the religious voice in the public square and its influence on public policy matters, and humanism. And it was kindly mentioned that uh, my real interest uh, in this whole arena, really, is in this non-religious ethical outlook, which has its roots way back in the ethical schools of classical antiquity and which has been much developed since that time. And uh, an interesting point to make about humanism is that it's not an ism, that is, it's not a doctrine, a set of do's and don'ts, but more an attitude, um, an attempt to uh, encourage people to think sympathetically and generously about the frailties of human nature and the difficulties that attach to uh, the different demands, pressures, opportunities, joys, possibilities that relate to this fact of being a human being in our world. But the topic in hand this evening, of course, is the question of the existence of God. And I'm using that phrase, existence of God, in quotation marks, because, of course, you've already gone quite a long way down the road if you use the word God with a capital G, and uh, maybe in the rabbi's case an asterisk and then a D, as if it were a name, as if it named something. Um, I prefer to talk about uh, uh, supernatural agencies, um, I told my very youngest child, whom I thought I would bring up as an atheist, although my wife did say she would probably therefore end up as a mother abbess somewhere, <laughs> and children being what they are. But I always said to her, always use the phrase gods and goddesses when you're debating people on these matters uh, in order to avoid the um, assumption that you're naming something, that there's a thing being talked about. Uh, or, I said, um, uh, ask your interlocutor not to use the word God, but to use the name Fred, if a name is going to be uh, at issue. So who created the world? Fred. And then, of course, you think, hang on a second, that doesn't explain anything at all, which is exactly the problem with that view about the origin of the universe. So my first difficulty is that the concept of a deity is an extremely ill-defined concept. We don't really know what we're talking about all the different religions and different uh, subsections of different religions have different views. Generally speaking, when you push and push and push for some definition, some characterization of what is really meant by an infinite eternal being with some interest in us and what we eat and wear and who we marry and so on, uh, you find that in the end, uh, resort is taken to ineffability, that we don't know, given our finite minds, what an infinite being would be like, and so it remains a very ill-defined um, mystery. And some people, of course, who have a religious a desire to be committed to a religious outlook find that rather comforting, because then they don't have the responsibility of defining what they're talking about. So uh, the way I approach the matter of um, the question whether or not there are supernatural agencies or entities in the universe is to look at two different uh, approaches. One is to look at the historical and psychological reasons why anybody might hold a belief in such things. And the second is to ask, 
a, a question about the epistemology of the matter, that is, of what can be known or believed with any degree of rationality. So on the first matter, on the historical and psychological aspects, it's very easy to understand that our forebears in the human story might have um, come to the idea of uh, agencies in the universe um, capable of causing storms and, and the thunder or the growth of plants or the movement of the sea because that was what they were uh, able to do by way of explanation of these phenomena. The one thing that our uh, remote ancestors would have had is a sense of their own agency. You can pick up a stone and throw it into a pond and make a splash. Well, you cause that to happen. So when the thunder sounds or the lightning strikes or the sea moves, you think there must be an agency behind it that makes it happen. And indeed, we can excavate from the mythologies of the world and from some uh, recent contemporary Stone Age societies that this idea of agency is indeed precisely what characterizes the roots of belief in such agencies. We look at the mythologies, we see in Greek mythologies, for example, that the nymphs and dryads were right there in the, the streams and the trees, and Poseidon, the god of the sea, was there under the water, and Helios, the, the sun god, flew his chariot across the sky. I'm quite sure that um, people didn't literally believe these things, but there were very handy ways of personifying the forces of nature. There has been a kind of geography uh, associated with the deities as they have reduced in number over time and as they've receded further and further away from uh, our uh, contact with them. So whereas the nymphs and dryads used to be right there in the woods and streams, eventually they moved away uh, with the gods to the top of mountains, and mountains were very sacred. Indeed, Moses met his god uh, on top of a mountain, you may remember, in the form of a burning bush, which suggests perhaps a sort of volcanic origin. And then when uh, people got to the top of mountains and had a look, uh, the gods went into the sky. They seemed to be receding further and further away as our knowledge of the world grew. And now that we know that there is no one way which is up, uh, because the, the Earth is round, um, they've receded beyond the horizons of space and time altogether. This uh, seems to be a, a, an interesting uh, uh, geography, if you like, of um, the objects or targets of uh, um, belief over time, which correlate to the increase in our understanding of the world around us. Psychologically, the desire to believe in powerful agencies capable of giving us help in times of trouble, protecting us against enemies, um, offering us uh, a continued existence after bodily death. These are all things that you imagine might be of comfort or support to people, especially in times of extremity, psychological difficulty. So once again, this desire to have a, a comforting, powerful, problem-solving parent figure in the, in the world, again, strikes one as very natural. Uh, and so that psychological consideration combines with the historical one to provide part of the explanation why um, persistence uh, of, of belief is such a phenomenon in human history. The other reason for it, perhaps, is that the temporal powers of the world have always found an alliance with the, the spiritual powers to be very useful. Because after all, the idea of a deity uh, which um, sees what you do and knows what you do all the time, even when you're on your own in the dark, is a very useful instrument of social control, or 
help anyway to govern the behavior of people and moderate their activities. And so you can see that there would therefore be very good reason why the temporal powers might support, fund, and uh, promote the activities of spiritual powers. Well, one could dilate at great length uh, about um, the reasons why beliefs originated and why they have continued. And the points I've just made touch on some of those aspects. But the second aspect is the epistemological one. That's to say, uh, questions about um, whether or not claims about the existence of supernatural agencies really stand up to scrutiny. And one reason why uh, they don't is offered to us by um, a philosopher called Karl Popper, a philosopher of science, who pointed out that a, a viewpoint or a theory um, which doesn't specify what would uh, count as counter-evidence to that theory, that is a theory which is consistent with anything and everything, that nothing or whatever will refute it or give us reason for doubting it, is an empty theory. So you find that almost all the religions of the world don't specify uh, what would count as counter-evidence against them. No matter what happens in the world, tsunamis and childhood cancers, and terrible things, the existence of natural evil in the world, of course the existence of moral evil is easily explained by uh, the grant of free will to human beings, but the existence of natural evil or the um, uh, odd things that uh, uh, occur in the structure and operations of the world are all explained away by people saying, oh well, perhaps it's part of the deity's great plan and we can't understand it because we are finite in uh, our cognitive powers. So on that claim, the, the idea that if something is consistent with everything, it doesn't explain anything at all, uh, we have some reasons for thinking that there is any coherence in the idea of supernatural agencies. But the, the main point, I suppose, you could urge is this. Sometimes people say, you can't prove that there isn't uh, a, a collection of supernatural agencies, or at least one such, in the world. And the answer to that is, indeed you can. And uh, here I'm just about to do it. And I pray in aid, um, pray in aid, the uh, example that uh, Carl Sagan famously gives us of the, of the dragon in the garage. And uh, to explain why this counts as a disproof, um, I must explain the following. The concept of proof in mathematics and logic is the concept of a, uh, is establishing a conclusion following from premises with logical necessity. The deduction uh, in, in, that lies uh, in the skeleton, if you like, of a, uh, an act of proving something. Uh, is this, that the form of the argument is valid, the premise is uh, true, and so the overall argument is sound. And to deny the conclusion in those circumstances is to contradict yourself. So proof is what happens when you go through a deductive procedure and the conclusion drops out at the other end with necessity. But proof in the empirical or contingent realm is not at all like that. In fact, the word proof in the empirical sense means test. Think of uh, the saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It means the test of the pudding. Or think about what happens in a steel foundry when steel rods are proved after being founded. That is, they are cooled down and then they are loaded with weight to see how much they can bear before they fracture. This is called proving the steel. We sometimes also say 
um, the exception that proves the rule. And then we rather hopefully think that that means that if there's an exception to the rule, then the rule's okay. But that's not at all what it means. It means the exception that tests the rule, that shows where the limits of the rule's application lie. And so in that sense of proof, as test, we can test the claim that there is a, a deity or that there are deities using Carl Sagan's example. Now you'll remember that example because you were all reading Carl Sagan in the bath last night, so you'll remember this. It goes as follows. Somebody says to you, I've got a dragon in my garage. And you say, oh, that's wonderful, I'd love to see it. And he says, oh, well, I'm afraid this is an invisible dragon. So you say, oh, well, uh, can we hear it flapping its wings? And he says, no, this dragon is silent. So you say, ah, oh, can we feel its hot breath? No, this dragon has cool breath. Mm, okay, well, let's put talcum powder on the floor of the garage and see its footprints. No, this dragon never lands on the floor. And so on and so on. So everything that you offer by way of test of the claim, every effort to prove the claim that there is a dragon in the garage meets some evasion. Now, what this suggests to us is this. In the empirical or contingent case, there is very, very little that we know. The concept of knowledge is a very exigent concept. If you know something, if it's true of you that you know something, then what it is you know is true. The justification you have for One minute. is watertight. So nothing, very little, counts as knowledge in our ordinary uh, understanding of the world. And indeed, no natural scientist would ever claim to know anything, but would only claim to have very well justified uh, commitments to um, theories which have undergone rigorous tests. So it's not a question of knowledge, it's a question of rational belief. So think of the concept of rationality. First part of that word is the word ratio, which means proportion. Proportioning the evidence you have to the conclusion you draw or the action you take. And when you ask the question whether it is rational to believe in supernatural agencies, and take your pick of anything which is non-natural, as it might be fairies or goblins or the gods of Olympus, or the god of Judaism or of Christianity, remember three of them in one, and so on. Take your pick of anything that you want to assert the existence of and ask yourself, what is the evidence? Time. And is the evidence proportional to the claim that you've made about its existence? Okay, Professor Grading, thank you so much for your, uh, your opening statements. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please can we give a round of applause to Rabbi Daniel Rowe for his opening statements. Just before I open, I actually wanted to say a big thank you to Oli Anisfeld and to everyone at JTV for putting on this rem remarkable event. A big thank you to them. And just a thank you to you. It's a big honor to be here, big privilege to be on this platform and with uh, Professor Grayling. Um, I wanted to open by pointing out, uh, a little bit defining, I guess, the topic as I understand it, belief in God. And I suppose what we're really discussing or debating is the rationality of belief in God. There are, of course, uh, you know, lots of perhaps non-rational reasons why a person might believe in God. It might be personal experience or something. And I guess tonight won't have so much to say to someone who has that. Or conversely, a person might have a non-rational reason to not want to believe in God or so forth. We're discussing on balance to the sort of arguments and evidence point us rationally in the direction of belief in God or rationally away from the direction of belief in God. 
And for me personally, this has actually been a big driver throughout my life. I, I had quite a, a phase in my life where I guess I was what you might call a Rossellian agnostic. Um, but for, so for me, I've often been wrestling with these issues. And what I want to really do tonight is talk about arguments that I think are there that make a rational case for belief in God. And now, of course, we need to define momentarily what we don't mean or do mean by the word God, right? We're not discussing Norse gods, and the English language has that beautiful ambiguity of uh, God means really, you know, hominid sort of figures inside the universe, as opposed to a creator of all of this. We're looking for the evidence of a creator of all of this. Um, so let's talk for a little bit about the sorts of arguments that might be, and let's touch upon them. The first, I think, is simply the question of the origin, where did everything come from? And it can be phrased like into three relatively simple stages. A would be the claim, or number one would be the claim, that extensional things, that is to say space, time, entities within space, time, or any other such dimensional framework, has not been around forever. It once did not exist. Claim number two would be, well, if there was nothing at that point, we would have nothing now. And claim number three, the deduction of those, it would deductively follow that there must be something that created this universe that is not extensional, not within space, time, or other such frameworks or, or extensions. Now, what is the justification of that? Well, one way to take it deeper is to ask a very obvious question. If this is a good argument that gets us to belief in God, then there's the sort of screaming question, well, how did God get there? Or how did this non-extensional first cause of everything get there? And, and, you know, and if you could say, well, it's been around forever, so just say the universe or some total of all finite or extensional or physical things has been around forever. But all of that covers up an ambiguity in what it means to be around forever, and perhaps even the term infinity, infinite, as I'm about to show you. It is one of my favorite areas. I spend quite a lot of time in the philosophy of mathematics working on infinities. But let's try not to be at all technical and, in, and just straightforward. Imagine the following. Suppose I held in my hand a ball, and this ball doubles in size every second and swallows up everything you know, that it that goes past. And so within a matter of, I don't know, relatively short period of time, it's actually not that short, but I haven't done the calculation, it would have swallowed up the entire universe. Now let's say it reaches the limits of, the, of space and it can just keep creating more space and expanding into it. And we ask ourselves the following question, is this ball infinitely big? And suddenly we realize, well, there's two different ways to answer this question. On the one hand, we might want to say, yes, it is, why? Because no matter how big it is, it, it will keep getting bigger. In other words, it has no final finite size to this ball. It's a bit like the algorithm that generates numbers. You, know, you can keep adding, keep adding, keep adding, and without end. And that's what Aristotle called a potential infinite, or what more contemporary philosophers might call an indefinite extension. It can keep getting bigger and bigger. But if we take infinite literally, not with limits, without limits, without boundaries or edges, we'll see upon very little reflection that this ball will always be finite. In fact, when it's a million, been around for a million seconds and it's enormously larger than it is now, it is no closer to shedding its boundaries and limits than it was when it started. It's as finite as it was when it began. In fact, a little bit of reflection is sufficient to demonstrate that bigness has nothing to do with infinity. This thing will be all possible sizes and never be remotely like anything without boundaries or limits. All sizes are finite. And that is true of all extensional structures and the fundamental essence of extension itself. It doesn't matter if you could take something and, so to speak, move it across time, the same would happen. It could occupy all times and it would always be 
finite. Extension simply cannot cross over from finiteness into non-bounded infinity. And that reflection was something that the ancients um, long ago, think about the first monotheists who came up with the idea of, of uh, you know, God outside the universe that created the universe. In their world, everything was explained by positing polytheistic, you know, superhumans. They could psychologically have achieved comfort with superhumans. They would have all sorts of historical reasons to believe superhumans. They would have guessed that things that make clouds are similar to themselves. What made anybody think all of that's not true and there's a non-extensional first cause of everything? It was actually reflection upon principles like this. Now, the ancients did not know a lot of science. But they did realize relatively quickly that all of extensionality follows the basic structure of arithmetic. That you could test whether two entities plus two entities equals four entities, but you could never empirically test whether 96,000 entities times 96,000 entities equals whatever that equals. And you simply couldn't do it. Uh, so, well, it would have been quite a practical problem amongst anything else. And larger numbers you for sure couldn't ever empirically test. Mathematics can't be empirically uh, falsified. Um, but nevertheless, what the ancients figured out is that everything within all of extension obeys the structure. It instantiates the structure of arithmetic. And you cannot get to the end of arithmetic. You cannot actually be in a state of being infinitely big. Now, those with a little technical background will know that mathematicians do talk since the days of Georg Cantor about uh, the transfinite and about things being uh, so to speak, at the end of infinity and all that. But all they're really doing then, um, for those of you bothered by that question, is they're simply stipulating. No mathematician ever showed any way to get to the end of arithmetic. It's actually impossible. What you do is you say, let's suppose you were, put down a marker, call it a number, and simply start again. But you cannot get to the end of extensionality. This ball could not become infinitely big. Space cannot cross over into infinity, and nor can time. And the ancients were able to make a remarkable prediction, the ancient monotheists. Here it goes. Humanity had a beginning. Now, you and I, that's obvious. We have the geological and paleontological record. We can see where it began, but back then they didn't. Yet they knew from the structure of finiteness and infinity that humanity had a beginning. Planet Earth had a beginning. The solar system, any object you could see out there, had a beginning. Any of these finite gods you might posit had a beginning. All things that obey extensionality have a beginning. They, would have, they predicted accurately this entire universe had a beginning. You needed science to tell us when the beginning was, cosmology to tell us how old the universe is, but you did not need any of that to tell you that each of them once did not exist. And so maybe now we might speculate as to what might exist before the Big Bang, if anything at all. Or might there be multiverses or other universes or who knows what. But what we have by the basic principle, the same principle, which is as sound today as it was then, is that all of those things once did not exist. Extensionality is not infinitely old. And we are in a universe or multiverse or whatever that is finite in duration and once was not there. Well then, how did it get here? Obviously not by anything extensional. We're talking before there was anything extensional. So what could it be? Nothing? Well, from nothing, nothing comes. Now, I will point out that that very intuitive statement has been challenged. But there is a, a famous physicist, Lawrence Krauss, who's an atheist, who makes the claim that actually we could get something from nothing. And he bases it upon what's um, really an analogy, if you like, although he thinks it's literal. He, in quantum physics, you can have quantum fluctuations where things collapse into different states, sometimes producing many particles or sometimes none. And he wants to say, isn't that nothing really? And I guess from there, of course, it could reconfigure and you could have energy and from there you could get all sorts of wonderful things, even a Big Bang. And he wanted to claim, therefore, you could get something from nothing. 
Now, that's an interesting definition of nothing, but of course, it's nothing to do with what we're discussing tonight. We're talking about what happened when there was no extension at all, when there were no quantum fluctuations, when there's no space, no time, or no extensional framework whatsoever, no potentiality, no sufficient conditions. There isn't even sort of a framework that could allow things to fluctuate and change within. In such a situation, there isn't even the most basic possibility of something coming into being. So if we know that all extensionality had a beginning, and we know that it didn't make itself, then we're pointing directly at the idea of a non-extensional, not in space, not in time, first cause of all that we have here today. And that is the foundations of one of the strongest arguments, in my opinion, for their belief in the existence of something not finite, not extensional, didn't have a beginning, isn't even a part of space and time, hasn't slipped into dimensions to be limited in that sort of sense, and is therefore the creator of all that is. That argument, which was made thousands of years ago, has stood the test of time, obviously, because everything we have studied has shown itself to have a beginning, but you did not actually need to empirically test it to know that it is true. It's rooted in the basic structure of arithmetic. But there's a lot more than that. Although I'm drop limited on time, so I keep trying to check my time over here. But um, is that all I've got left? Oh my goodness, okay, we'll see how much we can get in five minutes, I apologize. Um, okay, well it turns out like this. If you just imagine somebody could have this universe, and now it's populated by all these particles. Well, we're so used to it being ordered, we never stop and reflect on how astonishing that is. Properly, each proton, neutron, electron ought to just move around, do whatever it does. Why should they all obey precisely the same mathematical structure everywhere if there's no intelligence ordering this whole thing? In the words of uh, an Oxford um, mathematician and philosopher of science, John Lennox says, at the heart of all science lies the conviction that the universe is orderly. Without this deep conviction, science would not be possible. Now you may say, okay, but John Lennox believes in God, but even Albert Einstein, who's absolutely had no religion whatsoever, nevertheless could not bring himself to atheism just because of this deep observation. He says, but surely a priori, one should expect the world to be chaotic and not to be grasped by thought in any way if there's no deep ordering force holding it together. And he says, that's the weak point of positivists and professional atheists. We're just so used to the order that we don't stop and contemplate just how astonishing it is. I said I'd make four arguments, but because of the brevity of time, I'll simply make a third one. And that is to point out the following. A well-known point that is, as physics has progressed, we've discovered astonishing features of our universe. And that is the following. That if you would have trillions upon trillions of universes, popping into existence or big banging into existence or whatever, not a single one of them would actually produce anything alive within them. We're not just talking about humans, not a single one of them would probably ever be able to produce a molecule, probably not even an atom. For all sorts of reasons, it turns out that you need the constants of nature to be so precisely fine-tuned in order to allow anything to emerge, and we're talking many, many such constants that need to be precisely fine-tuned. Just to give you a sense of this, if you take gravity, the force of gravity, or, or let's even take better than that unlimited time, just um, the expansion rate, rate of the universe or the, the fine-tuning, the mass and energy of the universe was not evenly distributed at an incomprehensible precision of, listen to this number and I'll explain to you what it means, 10 to the power of 10 to the power of uh, roughly 120. Now, that is an astonishing number, but before I get into the number, let me talk about its significance. When we write six zeros after number one, we're talking about a million things. 
Nine is a billion, 12 is a trillion American convention. Right? Whenever we do these, we're talking a small amount of zeros is a colossal number. Now this is the sort of number which if you started writing it in the smallest handwriting you could imagine, and put it on every single paper, you would run out of paper long ago before you've even written this number. Let alone, if you actually wrote on every proton, neutron, and electron in this universe, you still would not have written this number out. That's how crazy the odds are of getting a universe with life in it by chance. Now, you might say, um, well, at a certain point, you might say we got lucky, but you start to think, at what point when you're looking at odds that are so absurd, you start to say this is not chance, this looks remarkably like design. Well, just think, how many times do you have to throw a six when you're throwing a dice? Is it 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, a million times in a row before somebody says, one second, this is not random. Something's playing along with this universe, with this dice throw, to get this remarkably ordered sequence. In the words of the Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect monkeyed with physics. One minute. And that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Now these and other such arguments are not new and atheists are very aware of them, and I'm looking forward to what uh, Professor Grain is going to say, but what, I'm going to, what I actually believe is the following, is that although there's a lot of counter-arguments out there, and attempts to show that these arguments don't actually rationally build the case for God, I actually am going to try and argue tonight that they do, and that most of these uh, counter-arguments, unless there's something completely radical and new here, actually don't succeed in defeating the power of these arguments, and that there is a rational basis for the belief in God. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rabbi Rowe, for your opening uh, remarks. Um, and now, back to Professor Grayling for your rebuttal. You have 10 minutes. Thank you very much indeed. Well, Daniel has succeeded in proving to me that arithmetic exists. I'm delighted. <laughs> I hope my accountant already thinks that that's the case. Um, you've offered us three arguments, the uh, origin argument, the design structure argument, and the fine-tuning argument, all very, very familiar, much discussed. Um, I, I'm, I'm very sorry, but none of them persuades, none of them can persuade, for the following reason. The origin argument very much depends upon saying, uh, making the claim that you made, that we know that the universe didn't make itself. I don't think we know any such thing. If you apply Occam's razor, that is the principle which says, let us go for the uh, most conservative explanation of phenomena that we can, then from the understanding that we have so far of the structural properties of the material universe in physics and in cosmology, we have very powerful theories used and applied in all sorts of ways which continue to give uh, justification for thinking that they're on the right track, which give us an explanation how this universe in this phase of its history at any rate could have originated from those fluctuations in a quantum vacuum. This is very, very well attested. And that is very much simpler than saying that uh, the universe uh, came into existence at a point before which there was some form of nothing, except that in it there was some undefined uh, agency capable of creating the universe. That is explaining the origin of the universe by something unexplained and something more mysterious than the universe itself. 
if uh, anything is capable of uh, bringing a universe into existence, there's no reason why it can't be the universe itself. The argument that um, the things that exist now in the universe didn't exist before is a truncated claim, it's elliptical. They didn't exist in this form before. It was certainly the case that uh, stars and galaxies and planets around stars uh, didn't exist in the early history of the universe, but evolved out of the forces uh, operating in the universe. The second argument is about structure. How can the universe have the structure that it does? Well, we know that unless uh, forces act on the um, material uh, particles of the universe, uh, they tend to decay into the most the laziest ground state that they can. This is known as entropy. Everything falls apart unless they are actively kept together by, uh, by, by the forces, the three atomic forces and the gravitational force. You are um, uh, the result of applying a great deal of energy to importing cabbages and uh, uh, potatoes and beefsteaks and salmon. Um, the people here will be pleased to know, which have kept you going uh, over time. But if you stop doing that, and if you uh, stopped taking in liquids, eventually your physical structure would decay away in an entropic fashion. So we have a good understanding of how order and structure arises in the universe uh, as a result of the operation of the um, strong and weak nuclear forces in the nucleus of the atom, the electromagnetic force, which keeps the whole atomic structure in being, and then on the large scale, the gravitational force. And indeed, we have a very beautiful and very well-attested theory resulting from uh, Einstein's work in the, in the um, general theory of relativity about the nature of space-time. The final argument is about fine-tuning. Well, um, Daniel obviously has uh, uh, mathematical competence, so I'm going to get him to work out the chances against my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents on my mother's side meeting on the day they did, liking one another, cozying up, and setting going a chain of events which has resulted in my being here today. And I would think that the probabilities against that uh, are, are very considerable. In other words, we occupy a universe which had to be a certain way in order for us to be here. To say that therefore it's a tremendous miracle that the universe was that way, I mean it's very, very like Dr. Pangloss who says, uh, you know, isn't it wonderful that we have noses so that we can wear spectacles? That the existence of spectacles is what made noses necessary in the first place. This is backwards reasoning. We're here, the universe produced us, uh, and it did so because of the way it's organized. And had it been organized differently, then indeed we wouldn't be here. So we are, if we are happy in our lives and in our own skins, the result of a pleasant accident. Okay, um, Professor Green, thank you very much for your first rebuttal. And now to Rabbi Daniel Rowe for your first rebuttal. You have 10 minutes. Thank you. Don't take off my time. 
Okay, so I outlined three arguments. I'd hope to go through four, but three. Um, just to rehash, the first one was the origin, and what I spoke about there was the fact that extensionality would not have crossed over into infinity. As far as I know, that wasn't contested. Um, what was debated is that why do you need, you know, why couldn't you get something from nothing? After all, we have these wonderful laws of physics that explain how quantum fluctuation can get you something to nothing, and Occam's razor says you don't need any more. I had actually already mentioned that in my opening statement. I was aware of the argument put forward by Professor Krauss, and I explained exactly why I thought it doesn't do the job, simply because that's not nothing. That is also part of this set of extensionality that once upon a time had to not be there. Um, in the words of, this, David Albert actually wrote a review of, uh, of Lawrence Krauss's work, and Albert is actually a professor of philosophy at Columbia University who specializes in the philosophy of physics, and he made exactly the same point, possibly more eloquently than I'd make it, and he said, where for starters are the laws of quantum mechanics themselves supposed to have come from? Krauss is more or less upfront, as it turns out, about not having a clue about that. And then he goes on to say that to say that that's called something from nothing is just not right. Relativistic quantum field theoretical vacuum states, no less than giraffes or refrigerators or solar systems, are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. He goes on to say the fact that particles can pop in and out of existence over time as those fields rearrange themselves is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that fists can pop in and out of existence over time as my fingers rearrange themselves. And none of these poppings, if you look at them aright, amount to anything even remotely in the neighborhood of creation from nothing. That when there was really nothing, without an infinite non-extensional creator, we wouldn't be here today. That's the first argument. What about the second argument? I made the point that, uh, you know, how, how, are, how, how, is, how is it that in the first place we even have laws of physics? Why is it that things obey any order and laws at all? And what uh, Dr. Groening said is, well, actually, they do because there's a law of entropy and there's a law of, uh, of gravity and there's other laws. But that's the question itself. Why do these things all obey those laws? It's not like you know, on atheism, there isn't exactly a lawgiver telling them you must obey these various different laws. And in fact, if you, you could think about this question from a completely different angle, go back in time to the 17th century when um, Newton and Francis Bacon were pioneering the revolution and actually releasing themselves from Aristotelian thought, which at times the church had even adopted, not at times, the church had adopted it too, but everybody thought, as Bacon writes, Aristotle is just so great you can't begin to argue with him. And what motivated people to say Aristotle's not gone far enough, there's got to be deeper laws, deeper unity underlying nature? Well. If you'd have asked polytheists who believed lots of gods, they'd say, well, I guess there's going to be lots of fundamental laws. If you'd have asked at the time an atheist, they might have turned around and say, well, why should there be anything deeper than this? It was their conviction that if there's one ultimate God behind all of it, then there must be one ultimate unifying principle behind all of it. And let's go and search for that. Um, just to give you also... It was Alfred Whitehead, I just love this quote, who says, he was, he was for those of you who know the philosophy of maths, he co-authored the Principia Mathematica. Sorry, that's just my, uh, I happen to like these things. But he writes exactly this point, that in the first place, there can be no living science unless there is widespread, instinctive conviction in the existence of an order of nature. And the point is that if you are on atheism, you would have no reason to believe, A, there shouldn't really be any reason why there should be law-like behavior of things and just positing laws only circularly begs the question, but B, that you would have expected there to be such deep order that if you probe, you'll find unifying theories, the one gravitational law applying to everything, and so forth. 
Third of all, I spoke about the fine-tuning of the universe. And uh, here Dr. Graney replied, well, what is the probability of him existing? In other words, we're turning the telescope, so to speak, the wrong way round, right? It's like, you know, and it's actually a very important piece of reasoning in a lot of probabilistic reasoning, but I don't think it applies over here, and I'll explain to you why. You see, when every outcome in advance would be no, no more particularly special than any other outcome, then you can use this exact sort of reasoning to say that outcomes are not surprising or miraculous. If his grandparents had, had not bothered meeting each other and somebody else had come into being instead, there's nothing a priori that says that's more ordered or that's less ordered, this is more subject to chance or that's less subject to chance. The analogy in dice throwing is if you throw a million throws of a dice, you will get a strange combination of numbers. The odds of, of, picking, of getting them in the beginning is just colossal. Or somebody wins a lottery and says, hey, what were the odds of that? It must be a miracle. Well, that's no more special than anybody else winning the lottery. But when outcomes are exactly the sort of thing a designer would do, and, exact, and in that sense very different to all the other outcomes, and extremely probability, extremely improbable, sorry, that is always the evidence we use for design. Consider this. If I take a wad of paint and just splash it on a wall, no matter what pattern it comes out with, the odds of getting that pattern are incredibly small. So if I go, look, what are the odds of that pattern? It's amazing, it's a miracle, or there must be design there, then the counter-argument works and says, well, all outcomes are equally improbable. What do you expect? But if I throw it and it says, hello, how are you? Well, at that point, we don't just say all outcomes are equally improbable. That's the sort of thing a designer would do. And that's the sort of thing that is incredibly unlikely to happen by chance. And when we consider that on the cosmic scale, we have something, a designer, a creator of the universe who has any purpose to it at all, would want there to be something conscious that can think about the creator, that can relate to the creator. That makes perfect sense that we end up with that. But the odds of getting that are far, far, far worse than the odds of throwing something on the wall and getting, hello, how are you? Now, some atheists try to respond and say, okay, but there's also a lot of, there's a very, very, very big universe, you know, why, did, why would a designer design it and only make one bit of it have life? Now, first of all, that presupposes that uh, there's no other life anywhere else in the universe, maybe there is. But if you just took a wad of paint and threw it on the wall and only a little bit of it said, hello, how are you? That would be pretty good evidence that you have a designer doing this. So some atheists say, and, and to some, you said it with a different argument, you say, well, okay, but the designer itself needs explaining. You haven't explained anything going on here at all still. But there's two questions. A, is there a designer? And then B, can you explain how the designer did it? The fact that I don't yet know how the designer got their name or got hello, how are you on there is utterly irrelevant. What I do know is this was designed. And so you can call it God. You can call it Fred, which might stand for a first reason for everything deity, or call it whatever you want. But I submit there is very strong rational evidence to believe in it. Thank you very much, Rabbi Rowe. Back to you, Professor Grading. You've got five minutes. Five minutes? Okay, so I've got to talk quickly now. Um, Firstly, we do need to put to rest a fallacy, which is that laws of nature are like human laws which are laid down by some authority. They're not. They're just regularities which are observed, and they're regularities with plenty of exceptions. So that's point number one. Point number two, Daniel said a really astonishing thing, which is that this universe would not be as it is unless it were designed by some conscious agency. I 
think that if there were some infinitely powerful non-extensional agency capable of producing a universe, it would probably be able to produce a lot better universe than this one. I mean, you only have to think about the appendix and consoles and so on. There are plenty of arguments to say there are massive imperfections in our universe, and you would have to resort to the marvelous argument of Leibniz which says this is the best of all possible worlds. And the best of all possible worlds had better not be a perfect one. There's got to be lots of imperfections in it so that we can all have something to struggle over. So um, I, I just simply find that a kind of post-facto reasoning which really doesn't carry any weight at all. The idea of, of the, the finitude of the universe seems to me perfectly plausible. I didn't address it because it struck me as being um, unnecessary to defend the idea that uh, an expanding universe, even if it's indefinitely expanding, would still be a finite universe. It seems to be perfectly, perfectly reasonable. And no ground for saying that there has to be something non-extensional to cause it. Again, just an appeal to the unexplained to provide us with an explanation. This is a, an old form of argument, often dismissed by being referred to as the, the god of the gaps argument, because we don't have a, an explanation um, that satisfies all of us about how the universe, or this universe, or the universe at this phase of its history has the character it does, that we have to invoke uh, Fred um, to, uh, to bring it into existence. So um, I, I find this implausible. Daniel has, has uh, appealed to the notion of rationality here. He wants these arguments to make it seem as though we have evidence of sufficient strength that it is proportional to a commitment Indeed, not just the commitment to there being a creator who created and went away, or a controller which keeps the laws behaving themselves, the laws of physics are, are towing the line, or uh, something capable of um, uh, producing noses and spectacles, but a deity who is going to go on to serve a lot of other needs, like, as I said, taking an interest in what we eat and who we marry and how we behave ourselves. And that, of course, is an extremely long way from a putative uh, original creator or a designer or a controller. Even if you had rational grounds for thinking that there must be such things. And remember, in the past, back to the 18th century, deists were people who thought that since we didn't yet have an adequate explanation for the origin of the universe or its existence, we had better postulate a creative agency uh, who ceased to exist or ceased to take any interest. Once, however, physics had uh, reached the point where, as uh, Lawrence uh, Krauss shows very eloquently in his book, that we have a theory which shows how nothing is not nothing. It's not that he argued that things came from nothing, but that there isn't such a thing as nothingness. The quantum vacuum is something in which vertical par virtual particles are always popping into and out of existence all the time, as a matter of statistics, just as, as a matter of statistics. It's almost certainly a huge number of uh, uh, planets in the universe on which there is some form of life. The question whether it's intelligent life is rather moot, since the question whether there's intelligent life on this planet is sometimes rather moot. Uh, but uh, ne ne nevertheless, just statistics itself would give us a universe. Thank you, Professor Grayling. Rabbi Rowe, you've got five minutes. Okay, so um, it strikes me as follows. The, the, some, I think some of the points just made now strayed beyond the topic of the question of does God exist into the question of did he write the Torah or otherwise reveal himself and get into dietary laws and so forth. I think that's not our topic tonight. We've got enough to discuss tonight, although happy to have that debate another time. Um, 
But it seems to me that just to briefly recap, I think we've, we've reached quite a strong point in most of these arguments. I, I noticed there wasn't a, even a rebuttal to the last, to the third argument there. But I think what the point that we've reached is this. If we sum up the first argument, we've agreed that things had a beginning. We've agreed that Lawrence Krauss, who claims he can get something from nothing, is not really talking about nothing. I submit that my argument that all these things, all finite things, all extensional things once did not exist includes all those quantum fluctuations and those states that have produced them. And therefore, I'm talking about before there was any of that, there must have been a non-extensional first cause. And I submit that that argument stands. Um, uh, Dr. Grady made the point that laws of nature are not laid down by some authority. Well, all I pointed out to you is that on atheism, we wouldn't have expected anything to have law-like behavior. So you don't need to call it law-like authority, like a policeman running around chasing particles all, all over the place. You're simply looking at the intelligence that's driving the universe to its deep order and making everything behave in law-like ways, call them patterns or whatever you want to call them. Um, there's this question of the fact the universe isn't absolutely perfect. You know, we have appendices and so forth, uh, appendixes and so forth. Um, well, in Jewish theology, actually, there's a very important reason for this. The, the belief that, that ultimately chaotic processes produce order in the end. And therefore, there's always a dynamic tension between chaos and order. But I think we're touching now upon much broader theological themes. The basic point is as follows, and it's a point many atheists actually try to make in reverse. What they say is if you want to believe in extraordinary things, you'd better have extraordinary evidence. Well, it strikes me that if somebody wants to get out of any of these arguments, they need to posit some extraordinary things. One of them might be to say that this universe has somehow crossed over into infinity, something Dr. Grading didn't say. Well, one says, well, that means once upon a time there's no extension and nothing produced it all, not quantum fluctuation states. Before all that, nothing produced all of this. Well, that seems to be not just astounding, but it would have the, all sorts of nonsensical uh, thoughts to it, like, well, there's no even arena within which change can take place. That's an astonishing claim to make. And that would need some evidence, not the fact that everything we look at seems to violate that principle. What about the fine-tuning of the universe? Well, like I say, I'm not sure if, I think the, the best we got is that, is that some things, you know, you calculate the probability in reverse and so forth. It strikes me that if a person wants to maintain atheism, they're going to have to posit all sorts of strange things. A universe that orders it, that produced itself, orders itself, and does all these kind of things are extraordinary claims being made without much evidence at all. But if you want to look for extraordinary evidence, here's what it would be. The type of evidence we use in mathematics, arithmetic. That is extraordinary evidence. You can do the most incredible sums and you have extraordinary evidence they're correct. And so if we have the arithmetic structure telling us that once all of this was not here, including the arena of quantum states, then we have extraordinary evidence for this first cause of all of it. If we have the types of probabilities we're talking about and the type of fine tuning we're talking about, we have extraordinary evidence for the interaction of the deity with that world. And I want to just finish by quoting Francis Bacon, the father of modern science, who said, a little bit of philosophy inclines a, man, a, mind, a man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy brings a man's, a man's mind back to religion. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both to our speakers for what so far has been a really fascinating uh, debate. Um, we're now going to go to the audience. It's your chance to ask uh, questions. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to alternate between speakers. So we're going to start off with a question for Professor Grayling. 
Um, so, uh, who would like to ask a question? Thank you. So, my, my question is, um, I believe that the Higgs boson uh, was uh, recently discovered, and it took the biggest piece of machinery that we've ever created to discover that. So, prior to that, it was theoret theoretical. And uh, perhaps uh, what we need to be able to see the dragon that Carl Sagan spoke about was just a much better piece of kit, a much better test. And does Carl Sagan's uh, example prove that there's no dragon or also prove the possibility that no, there's not an adequate test? Um, well, uh, if um, we were to make an even bigger detector of some kind in the hope of it spotting uh, the non-extensional creator of extension, um, then it's going to have to be a very, very clever piece of kit. I mean, one, one thing you will notice in Daniel's exposition is that he makes constant use of two completely unexplained and ill-defined notions. The notion of a uh, putatively unextended creator of the universe and the notion of infinity. Now, the concept of infinity has some nice definitions in set theory, but it is one of those concepts like immortality and perfection, which are actually just defined by negation on something that we know. We know that's what it is to be finite, mortal, and imperfect. But to get the other concepts, you just put not in front of them and, and get the notion of infinity. So it is as ill-defined as the, the uh, idea of something which we wouldn't even know how to look for even if we had a big enough machine to do it. <clears throat> Perhaps like uh, the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide uh, uh, Deep Fork computer. Thank you. I did mean to mention, by the way, we're going to give each speaker 90 seconds to answer questions, <laughs> even though that was uh, very much within the time limit. Okay, uh, a question for Rabbi Rowe. We'll get to social media questions in a bit. Don't worry, guys, watching uh, on the live stream. A question for Rabbi Rowe. Yeah, we've got one over here. This is a question for Rabbi Rowe, but it would apply equally to Professor Grayling. Um, and I'm guessing my, the idea of my question from Schrodinger's famous cat. Is it possible that uh, whether or not God exists to the individual is a matter of the individual's sensitivity to that possibility? That's the question. Um, well, the, the factual existence, the objective existence won't be a matter of, of our sensitivity. It, one might argue that our ability to intuitively connect to God might be different for different people. That might certainly be uh, such an argument. But the fact of the matter, you know, and using Schrodinger's cat, the fact, if we take a look at uh, for scientific evidence, and uh, we say, you know, where is, where is this explanation? I think you don't need a detector machine also to back up the first question. I think we've pretty much got that. You can look at the fine tuning, that's pretty strong evidence this thing was designed. The type of arguments we're using is better than what a machine needs to actually test. And I think the evidence is actually very strong and very there. But returning to this question, the question of can it, does, does some people intuitively have a, feel they have a relationship with God and others don't, I think that may well be the case. But whether it objectively exists or not is not going to be subject to different people's opinion. Okay, question for Professor Grayling. Um, in response to uh, in fine-tuning and general order, um, what would you say to James A. Shapiro, um, who is a professor of University of Chicago, in his theory, the third, um, third way in which cells define their own definition of um, the next stage, in the sense that um, a designer must have created something which can think for itself in such a way, on such a micro level? Um, I don't know that work, and uh, it, it, unless the explanation 
uh, could be reformulated in some way. It doesn't sound uh, especially coherent. Um, there is a problem with the um, idea of design itself. I think people who use the argument from design, it's a very, it's a very typical sort of creationist move, um, probably don't really understand what the designs are in physical and biological structures, nor indeed how they can evolve in order to have the complexity that they do. Uh, a little closer examination of both those processes and ways that you could easily model them on a computer by giving some parameters and some starting conditions um, will, will produce highly complex and apparently wonderfully well-designed things. Richard Dawkins very often says, of course biological organisms are designed. They're designed by uh, um, the response to natural pressures which have brought about those structures. So I think the argument from design, if, it's, if we explore it a little bit, seems to be predicated much more on lack of understanding, really, of what those structures are and how they can appear. Great. Okay. Anyone for a question for Rabbi Daniel Rowe? Rabbi, I wanted to ask you, um, even if it's right that there is a rationale for a, a, a creative force that, that originated the universe, is there a rationale for saying that that force is still around and that has expectations of us having a moral way of, uh, of living um, that is ultimately good and that, f and that frowns on evil? Because I think that's, that's the key understanding of God, not just origin of the universe, but that it has expectations of morality from us as human beings. And is there any evidence for that? Okay. So, um, in 90 seconds, I'm not going to be able to do full justice to the question, but maybe I'll just drop one or two thoughts. One of the arguments I was going to use is the argument from the fact that we seem to think of morality as an absolute uh, rather than a relative concept. We tend to say people can be right or wrong when the fact of the matter doesn't originate in our heads, but in the world. And we seem to be able to say that people can be right or wrong about moral um, issues as well. And that's appealing to a fact beyond humanity. Now there's a big debate about does that necessitate belief in a fundamental moral force like God or not. I happen to think it does and I happen to think that would be a very powerful and compelling argument for that same creator wanting us to behave in a way that emulates the very act of creation which is an act that the creator gains nothing from and is selfless giving. Every time we emulate that through selfless giving we are aligning ourselves with the fundamental root of creation. Every time we destroy on the other hand, we're violating the fundamental root of creation. But it would need a little more to elaborate upon it, but that's the rough direction. Okay, um, a question for Professor Grayling. Professor Grayling, first of all, um, your use of the English language is spectacular, so thank you. Um, I, uh, uh, I went to a Jewish school, so mine isn't. So however... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I wanted to keep it to a question. Um, I, I'd like to go to the very beginning of this discussion and go to the very beginning of what we have been arguing about, and that is, I don't feel as though I've had a, a, a satisfactory answer from you as what was there when there was nothing. And you have um, eloquently described different universes um, combining with each other and when there was absolutely nothing, I'm not talking about the forces before the forces, before anything, can you give us or give me an answer as what started? And I can't hear that in the answers you've given so far. 
Well, mainly, I think, because um, the, the, there are no good candidates uh, in the field uh, either for saying um, that there was nothing before some beginning point in time. Maybe the universe itself has been indefinitely existing, perhaps in an extremely rudimentary state. It's just a, a vacuum with virtual particles in it. Uh, or, or maybe there was a genuine nothing, if we can make any sense of that notion. Or maybe there was a start in time, and then the question arises, if there was, if we can somehow get our minds around the idea that there was an absolute nothing, other than the fact that there was a non-extension of something in the nothing in order to bring something out of it, and now we really are groping, and we start to feel for, for that sort of notion, then what was it? A rabbit, or, or uh, 15 and a half rabbits, or I mean, choose anything you like. I mean, it's absolutely open and undefined. Uh, if you're going to go down the road of saying there has to have been something in the nothing so that nothing could produce something, and all this seems to me like empty wordplay. The bounds of our uh, knowledge, uh, the limits of ignorance in a way, um, have been very, very much reduced by looking at the way the universe is working backwards, understanding the forces and the evolutionary processes, and coming to a point where this universe, which is maybe the inheritor for many earlier universes, or maybe one of many, many universes, but we have a, an understanding of how this universe evolved Time. from a, a very different state of, of matter and its properties uh, about 13 and a half billion years ago. And that is a powerfully attested view. Um. Okay, now, David, I know we had a question from someone uh, submitting it online on Facebook, so let's go to that. It's from Ben Curtis. How do you know that your particular god or religion is the correct god or religion? That's to the rabbi, obviously. Okay. That's a great question. I'm not even going to attempt to answer that in 90 seconds. <laughs> I'll have enough time just dealing with the question of how do we know God exists. Um, I will only point out that the God that we're describing, much as I think uh, you have a wonderful way of putting things down and making things, you know, but the idea that a rabbit created our universe is, of course, nonsense. Rabbits are extensional things. They exist within it. Now, when we talk about something that's non-extensional, non-spatial, non-temporal, you might not have a good picture of what that concept is, but I think that's pretty clear that everything extensional didn't create itself, then that's what we have. Whether you can picture it or not, it's not a rabbit, and it's not like anything else inside the physical universe. Okay, thank you. We're going to have two more questions for each speaker now. So I know there's a lady over here who wants a question to Professor Grayling. So can we get a uh, camera over here? Um, I found your argument extremely seductive. And as I was listening and you were talking about empirical evidence and rationality, um, I was wondering, and what popped into my head is, how, would you apply the same arguments that you do to God to love? Uh, not at all, because I um, have experienced love, uh, both as a lover and as somebody occasionally loved. Uh, and, uh, I, I think it is a, a very powerful and important force and a great value in our lives, something for which we strive. Um, and uh, if we were able to love well, which sometimes we don't do, the world would certainly be a much better place. But there is certainly a lot of empirical evidence for love. Um, quite a lot of that evidence is sitting on seats in this room at the moment. Yeah. Well, I should say the outcomes of acts of love. <laughs> okay, great. Question for Rabbi Rowe. Um, I'd like to know, what would it take for you to change your mind? And that can equally apply to Professor Grayling as well. Okay, well, let me, let me tell you what it would take to change my mind. 
that, uh, that there's a rational case for the existence of God, somebody to show you how you can get across an actual infinity, somebody to explain why something from nothing is not an absurd concept, somebody to explain how you can get the most incredible improbability of something, um, let's say a wad of paint on the wall and someone saying, hello, how are you, and that not being an object of design. I think if somebody could do that work, then I think, yes, I would admit there's no rational case for the existence of God. Okay, great. So final question for Professor Grayling. Although you believe you're able to disprove it, what do you believe is the strongest attempt to prove God? Well, I'm, uh, I'm terribly sorry to say that uh, having heard many iterations of the arguments that Daniel has offered and others, um, I've never found any of them to be cogent, so I'm still hopeful that somebody might come up with something a little bit more persuasive. Okay, and a final question for Rabbi Rowe. Who would like to be the final questioner? Um, I was just wondering, uh, the point you made about it being a statistical, um, like something that would happen very, it's an impossible, it's not actually an impossibility, what you said, it is actually a possibility, I think you said 10 to the 10 to the 23. Are you accepting on that proof that it is a possibility that it all could have been random, so it's not necessarily a proof of God, it's just, it's saying, well, it probably, there probably is a God, and that proof, point of proof. I think that's an excellent point, except that I would say when you prove something in science, we prove all sorts of things we don't directly see. Uh, a lot of things we don't even fully understand. Uh, if I wanted to be sort of make fun of belief in that, one would do all sorts of things. But we do prove it through deductions and through statistics all the time. Typically, to publish something in a scientific journal, if it's 95% sure, you can usually get it published. You know, occasionally if something's proven to you know one in a thousand, that's when you really know you're dealing with hard evidence. So I actually think once statistics start to cross a certain level, you know this is not random. You know there's a design or, or an order or something. It could be you know particle that you're looking for that you can't directly see, but it is statistics that tells you that it is there. And I don't think we know of any fact that has that type of statistical improbability of having got there by chance. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're now going to go to closing statements. Um, so to begin, we will start with Professor Grading. You have three minutes. Thank you. Well, just very, very quickly, um, one thing that I think uh, we really must uh, call Daniel up on is his uh, reassertion of the claim that uh, the universe could not have created itself, that extensional entities could not have come out of precursors of those extensional entities. And I, I just think that is a, a, an unsubstantiated claim. Um, Daniel said that he wanted to offer some rational reasons for believing in God and then the, the, the mystery of, of where things come from and the fact that they have order or structure, that these are uh, rational reasons for believing in God. Um, I hope very much, I'm very pleased to hear that you are uh, now on the verge of being dissuaded from your religious belief given the arguments <laughs> I've offered you. <laughs> but, but, um, the great temptation is to be just a, a tiny little bit unkind and say that these are not rational arguments, they're rationalizations. If you want very much to believe that there is a deity or there are some uh, supernatural uh, outside of the universe uh, agencies, then you can certainly look around for things. I'm much minded of the people, fundamentalist Christians, for example, who cite the banana in evidence of God's existence because it is such a handy piece of uh, fast food. Uh, and they seem to forget the coconut when they do this. So I, 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 I rather think that if you're very selective in what you want to count as supposed evidence, 
for, for this claim, um, what it turns out to be in the end is a, a rationalization rather than a rational reason. Thank you, Professor Grading. Rabbi Rowe, three minutes. Sure. No. Okay. A big thank you to everybody. It's certainly been wonderful and very entertaining to be with you here tonight. You do have a way of pulling things that's remarkable. Um, I think if you remember the opening statement that we began with Carl Sagan's story of how you would know there's a dragon there. You know, there's no evidence whatsoever, and you just come along and sort of ad hoc uh, sort of posit this thing. Well, I think if, if you had evidence that is so strong that it is 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123, you would know you've got a dragon in there. And I think if you had a phenomenon which you simply could not explain without that dragon, such as every time you appear at night, the, the walls are burnt down, you would, you would have a pretty good idea that you've got some kind of dragon in there. Um, I'd like to close. I actually think that we made the case for belief in God very rational, and, and I have to disagree with your own analysis of this. I've heard many of these attempted counters before, and am quite frankly unpersuaded by them for the simple reason they when you when evidence is pointing in one way, and you simply say, "Oh, well, it's ad hoc to put a God there or something like that," then you're really doing a disservice to the way we think and prove all things within this universe and all reasoning. Full stop. Um, when I was in uh, you know, my very exploratory phase and, and people from atheists, atheists were trying to persuade me um, in different directions, so there was always a reading list we had growing up. You had to read David Hume and Bertrand Russell. And one of the people you had to read who was still alive was called Anthony Flew, Professor Anthony Flew. And uh, Flew himself, of course, reached a certain phase where he, uh, where he changed his belief and began to become convinced in, in the belief in God. And uh, that was actually quite a, an interesting, interesting thing because at first people had a rumor and then he said, no, definitely not. And he hadn't changed and then he actually did go ahead and change and then he wrote a book and then people said, no, he forged the book and it was written by somebody else. And then of course we found the original papers that he'd actually structured it. And Anthony Flew made the following very profound point. He said that science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to God. The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. The second is the dimensions of life of intelligently organized and purpose-driven beings which arose from matter. The third is the very existence of nature. But it is not science alone that has guided me. I have also been helped by a renewed study of the classical philosophical arguments. And he ends, we have all the evidence we need in our immediate experience that only a deliberate refusal to look is responsible for atheism of any variety. I put it to you this way, that if uh, what he wanted to say is, how do we know it began? And I already showed you, extension cannot have been infinitely old. Unless you're going to say it made itself, you're looking straight at the creator. How did the laws of nature, how is the universe organized by laws intelligently? Well, there's just laws. That's circular. If you're going to do that, you know, then you're not, then you're, as he put it, a deliberate refusal to look. If you're going to say when the odds are 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123, that that's not evidence, then perhaps that constitutes a deliberate refusal to look. But I certainly do believe that a very rational case has been put for the belief in the existence of God. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we can all agree it's been a fascinating and exhilarating evening. Um, can I first thank our two participants, Professor A.C. Grading and Rabbi Daniel Rowe, for their fantastic contributions. And uh, thank you to our audience and our viewers at home, uh, without whom JTV would not be possible. Thank you all so much for coming. So finally, just want to encourage you again to get subscribed to JTV to continue with us on our journey. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at JTV's next live event, which will be revealed soon. Good night and God bless.
Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can find more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manus Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Kiva Tatz, and many more, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Ollie Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.